Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Another great opportunity today on Spirit in Action. It's been five years since we've had James Lowen with us, and I'm so excited. You likely know him from his national bestseller, Lies My Teacher Told Me, but this sociologist, historian, writer, and teacher has written and done so much more. I'm eager today to speak with him mostly about his book about sundown towns, a feature of mostly northern and heavily midwestern racism going on during the Jim Crow era and continuing today, but outside of the traditional South. This is a history that has been willfully suppressed and ignored, but we can only be the best nation we can be by facing the facts. Alternative facts will not do. Great thanks to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's show, and we'll go now to James Lowen, just outside of Washington, D.C. Jim, it's wonderful to have you back today for Spirit in Action. I'm happy to be with you. Last time we were together was back in 2013. You were here in Eau Claire, and you've been to Eau Claire once or twice even since then, speaking generally at the university. But you're out by Washington now, right? Yeah, I live in Washington, D.C. And you come back in Midwest? Is it you come back to speak, or is it because, you know, the draw of Illinois or something? Well, you can take the boy out of Illinois, but you can never take the Illinois out of the boy. (laughs) No, I mostly do get a lot of speaking engagements in the Midwest. And one reason for that is because one of my books, Sundown Towns, which, of course, are towns that for many decades were all white on purpose, well, they proliferate all across the Midwest, including almost for sure Eau Claire and for sure La Crosse and all kinds of other towns in Wisconsin. And in Illinois, well, I grew up in Illinois. I thought I was going to maybe find 10 of these towns in Illinois that were all white on purpose, and then maybe 50 across the country. I'm now at a count of 506 sundown towns in Illinois alone, which is 70% of all the towns that there were, and a similar percentage, I think, in Wisconsin, in Oregon, and in various other places across the north. That's quite amazing that there's so much of it, because we really don't know anything about it. I'm not finished reading Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism yet, but what I found has been earth-shaking. Actually, it's been kind of depressing for me. Yeah, it's a terrible read in a way. I would recommend that every listener should buy this book and then not read it and then give it to their local... No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) It's stuff we need to know. But it's just very depressing. I mean, it turns out that, for example, between 60% and actually usually 80% of all suburbs in the United States, all the way from New York City suburbs to, on Long Island to the suburbs of Los Angeles, went sundown or were formed as sundown in the first place between about 1905 and 1968. That's when that pretty much stopped. And in terms of independent towns, all across the country, except in the traditional South. Well, that was a little earlier, 1890 to about 1940. And that era, which you call the nadir, is this a generally accepted historical term, or is this specifically uh, James Sloan? No, no. Actually, it was invented, oh, maybe 40 years ago by a now-deceased professor of history at Howard University named Rayford Logan. And he got the dates a little bit wrong. I think he would even agree with me if he were alive, but of course I can't prove that. But the point is, everyone knows that after the Reconstruction period in the South, 
beginning around 1890, black folks start losing the civil rights that were guaranteed them by the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, like the right to vote, the right to be on juries, and so on. Well, what people didn't realize is that Reconstruction referred, of course, to the political reconstruction of the southern states, which had left the Union and which had therefore no functioning viable government so far as the United States was concerned. It didn't have anything to do with reconstructing buildings that had gotten destroyed during the war. Reconstruction happened in Florida and Texas, where they hardly had any civil war. But Reconstruction was also an ideological movement across the country, and it was an anti-racist, really kind of idealist movement that said, you know, black folks fought for the United States in the Civil War. They maybe even made the difference. They should have all the rights that everybody else has. And the Republican Party back then, that was their position. And the Democratic Party was, of course, the party of white supremacy, called themselves the white man's party into the 1920s. Well, toward the end of 1890, three things happened to reverse all this good feelings. The state of Mississippi invented a new constitution. There was nothing at all wrong with their old one, except that it let black folks be citizens and vote. And the 1890 constitution took care of that. Second, we had what used to be called the Battle of Wounded Knee, but now it's more accurately referred to as the Massacre at Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And Native Americans go into their nadir. Nadir, of course, means low point. So they go into their low point for sure. And the third thing that happened was the United States Senate failed to pass, more or less by one vote, the Federal Elections Act of that year. Kind of like the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It wasn't as good a bill, but it wasn't bad. Well, it had been passed by the House. It would have been signed into law by Republican President Benjamin Harrison, but it failed. And after it failed, the Democrats did what they usually did. They tried to tar the Republicans as nothing but, and they used the N-word, nothing but nigger lovers. And in the previous iterations of this, the Republicans had stood up and said, you're darn right, somebody's got to do something to stand up for the rights of these folks across the South that you're persecuting for voting. But in 1891, they had a new reply, and their new reply was, no, we aren't. And they moved on to other issues. So between 1890 and 1940, really, the black community, and for that matter, the native community, was pretty much without political allies, and bad things happened all across the country, including sundown towns. Let's spell out a little bit clearer what sundown towns are. A number of them actually had official signs at that you yeah, probably only at 20% had signs, but the signs were terrible. I'm going to have to use the N-word again because that's what they said. In fact, uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin, shall we say, boasted such a sign at its city limits into the 1960s. Nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in Manitowoc. Even without the sign, the policy was clear. I talked, for instance, with a retired Washington Post reporter who had grown up in Johnston City, Illinois, which I'd already known was a sundown town, and he confirmed that. And then I asked him, I said, well, did it have an ordinance? Some of these towns passed ordinances. Most of them never did. I said, did it have an ordinance? Did it have a sign? And he said, are you kidding? We never needed an ordinance. We never needed a sign. If a black family paused for just a moment tarrying in town, the chief of police asked them their business. So we have a situation where they don't have an ordinance, and this absence of an ordinance is enforced by the chief of police. And again, the purpose of it being after dark, after 6 o'clock. Yeah, meaning you can't live there. You can't rent a house. You can't live in it. You can't be in the school system. They actually oftentimes were terrible to people who were there at 7 p.m. 
But you could sometimes do your business affairs there. You can buy, sell things there. Yeah, I actually know of four sundown towns that made it difficult and in, in two cases impossible to even buy stuff there or work there during the day. Two of them are in Indiana and two of them are in Illinois. And they were really remarkable. I mean, among other things, you couldn't buy gas. Now, you think about what are these white folks thinking? Here you got a black family. They're in your town. They need gas to get out of it and you won't sell gas? <laughs> It just shows how crazy the system was. Pekin, Illinois, for instance, a city of about 30, 32,000 in central Illinois, Pekin is almost a sundown town to this day. Certainly it was until fairly recently. And it had a major employer, still has a major employer, Commonwealth Edison, a power plant. And African-Americans worked there. If they had the night shift, it was difficult. After a while, they actually, I think, had a system where they would tell their license plate numbers to the police so that the police wouldn't pull them over at night but would pull over all other black folks. One of the things that's remarkable, and you document this very carefully in Sundown Towns, you say that blacks were more widely dispersed in small towns in a number of counties all over before the onset of the Nader, before 1890. That's right. Beginning actually during the Civil War, not even when it ended, but as early as, say, 1862, it was even union policy to disperse the black population, and here's why. Particularly in the West, the United States started winning the Civil War right off the bat, or, or early on, uh, and Grant took two forts in Tennessee, and then he mounted this campaign down the Mississippi River, and meanwhile the United States Navy took New Orleans and mounted this campaign up the Mississippi River, and of course it all came together on July the 4th, 1863, when Vicksburg capitulated, and pretty much the Mississippi was in United States hands from start to finish at that point. Well, with all of this fighting going on, all kinds of black folks became refugees. They were wounded. Of course, after January 1st, 1863, some of them were soldiers who were wounded, and all the wounded people would wind up at Carroll, Illinois, down at the bottom of Illinois. That was a huge staging ground for the whole war effort, because it's on both the Mississippi and the Ohio rivers, and the Cumberland River flows into the Ohio from Tennessee. So, Pretty soon, Carroll winds up with all kinds of African Americans, whole families, not just fighting people. What to do with them? It's a small town. So they parceled them out. And for example, um, a carload, that is a train carload, wound up in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, sponsored by a chaplain in the United States Army. And all the people of Fond du Lac go down to meet them, and they get put up in the hotel for the night. And the next morning, you know, somebody says, well, I'm putting in a new orchard. I can take two hands. And somebody else says, well, I, I can use one. And, you know, they wind up all over the place working in Fond du Lac. Well, that started happening. And then after the war, as soon as people became free, some of them wanted to see the country. And so they wind up across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. They wind up in every county in Montana except one. Every county in Indiana except one. They wind up just all over the place like everybody else would, maybe even more so. And then after 1890, they get shunted out of many, many entire counties in Indiana. The black population of the Upper Peninsula drops. The black population of Montana drops. They wind up in just a few larger cities in most states. And what portion of this, if any, is in any of our textbooks, past and present? In 1890, did textbooks carry things accurately? You know, I have a big textbook collection, and it actually starts with 1824. I'm not sure I have any from the 1880s. I'll have to think about that. What I will say is the basic underlying storyline 
all textbooks today, and for the period I've been studying them, which is the intensive period, which is about 1975 till right now, the basic underlying storyline is unrelenting progress. That is, we started out great, and we've been getting better ever since, pretty much automatically. I mean, you people should vote, but you don't have to do a lot else because we're great and getting better. Well, the problem with that is, I mean... Sometimes it's true, but sometimes it isn't. And with regard to the nadir of race relations, since race relations got worse and worse after 1890, it's not true. And therefore, the textbooks don't cover it. I don't actually think the authors know about it, but if they did know about it, it simply wouldn't fit their underlying narrative. And so they can't cover it. You know, I'm thinking of of Donald Trump's hats, Make America Great Again. We're back on that unrelenting progress, aren't we? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I'm sure race relations are now getting better under the Trump administration. Oh, so obviously. So do you have a sense of when America was great? I mean, from their point of view, from your point of view, you might have a very different view. Well, of course, it depends on what their point of view is. And I try not to stereotype Trump voters, and I actually think that they're rather differentiated groups. So they're not diverse, you know, racially, but they are diverse in some of the ways they think. And let me give you an example. Entire counties went sundown, and one of the counties in Illinois that went sundown, and maybe still is, it was the last I knew, is Calhoun County. It's on the Mississippi River just a little bit north of St. Louis. It's a very rural county, has about 5,000 residents, and it's really a peninsula. It's surrounded by water on Mississippi on one side and the Illinois River on the other side. And uh, you can get to it by ferry or you have to drive down from the north on the peninsula. Well, this county voted for Obama the first time he ran. They voted 52-47 for Obama, which is exactly what the United States did. But it's not what white folks in the United States did. You know, no white majority ever voted for Obama. The reason Obama won 52-47 was because of black voters and also Latino voters and Chinese-American, other Asian-American voters. Well, none of those were in this county, which was a sundown county at the time. So they voted more for Obama than most white folks do. And yet they're in a sundown county. It was sundown at the time because I was there at the time. (laughs) Now, in the last election, they voted two to one for Trump. Now, does this show they're racist? Well, in a way it does. On the other hand, does the vote for Obama show that at least 52% of them are anti-racist? Well, in a way it does. You know, people are complex. People can be two things at two different times. And plus, there's other things going on. There's other reasons to vote for both of these candidates than simply race. I say all that partly because I don't want Trump supporters to go off and think that sundown towns are okay and that they support them. Quite the contrary. I I think every Trump supporter should be an anti-racist and should be anti-Trump on that ground, even if they think he's great on other grounds. Well, one of the things that comes out through your books is this multiple ideas. It's not an either or. I mean, it's kind of like quantum physics can be both, even though they seem contradictory to us. There are people who were anti-slavery or possibly anti-slavery in the North and who are anti-black and they were also pro-union. So anti-slavery racism, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're for equality and that you want to live with someone of a different race. That's right. It doesn't. On the other hand, it does provide an opening. And and that's, in fact, kind of why we had Reconstruction as an anti-racist movement in the North in the first place. I mean, if you think about it, these folks from Fond du Lac, for instance, they go off to fight. White folks, of course, Fond du Lac was all white at the time. It wasn't a sundown town, but there were hardly any black folks in rural Wisconsin in 1860. 
So some of them are abolitionists. We remember the Republican Party was even founded in Wisconsin, and it was kind of founded on an anti-slavery basis. So some of them are at least anti-slavery, and some of them are maybe in favor of black rights, but not as many as who were anti-slavery, as you just noted. Well, then they go off and they start fighting, and this isn't from somebody from Fond du Lac, but let me quote a letter from somebody from Maine, and he uses the N-word, so I'm going to use it, but it's really an anti-racist letter. I want you to listen to it. I'm going to quote it from memory, but he's fighting in Sherman's campaign in Georgia, and there's a USCT, that is United States Colored Troops unit, right next to him, and they're fighting very well, and as they did throughout, they, they had special reasons to fight well, because if the Confederates ever... POW'd them, they were likely to be killed or re-enslaved, unlike white POWs. So he says, I have a lot higher opinion now of the nigger than I did six weeks ago. And he goes on to talk about how wonderful fighters they are in the next unit over. Well, that same kind of thing happened to people from Fond du Lac. They had all these refugees that would hang on to the army because they could be free as long as they were near the United States Army. And so they started teaching them how to read. And they really wanted to learn how to read, and they really learned fast. And so pretty fast, these people who were only in it to hold the union together, if they had any interracial contact, they started switching over and also being in it to end slavery and also being in it for equal rights for everybody once slavery was ended. I'm curious, you grew up in Illinois. I was actually born in southwestern Wisconsin, grew up mainly in southeastern Wisconsin, a wide orbit of Milwaukee is where I grew up. And my dad, having been born on a farm in southwestern Wisconsin, he used the N-word. And I would say he wasn't anti-black, but he was definitely anti-whites have anything to do with blacks. And he'd be extremely racist. Once threw one of my sister's black friends out of the house because he wasn't going to have a black person in our house. Uh, That's racist. Don't don't say he wasn't racist. (laughs) Well, what I mean was he didn't think that African-Americans should be killed or hurt, but they just shouldn't be mixing with whites. Well... That's racist. I mean, we don't have to be genocidal to be racist. Right. But I want to draw that distinction because, as you said, a lot of people who were anti-slavery were not necessarily pro-integration, right? There's no question he was racist, but, I mean, there's a kind of a bloodlust and such that seems to come with it sometimes. So I'm curious about what your environment was like way down in Illinois. Well, Decatur which is the city I grew up in, was an industrial city, is an industrial city of maybe 65,000 to 90,000 people, depending on which census we're going by. And I lived in the white end of town. That is, it was fairly segregated. We sociologists have a way of measuring these things. It goes from zero to 100, actually. And Decatur was about 68, with 100 is complete apartheid, and zero is complete integration, with every block being like every other block. And just so you know, Chicago at that time would have been maybe 82, so it wasn't as bad as Chicago. It was not quite as bad as most of the cities around it in central Illinois, which would maybe be about 73, but it, was, it wasn't very integrated. All the schools were integrated, kind of. I mean, I say all the schools, but my elementary school didn't have a single black student. Junior high school did, and high school did. I don't know how I felt about race back then. I didn't have any close black friends because none lived very near me. At school, I had passing friends, kind of. I mean, I'd say hi to them. 
I think what actually got me interested in race relations was taking sociology at an almost all-white college in Minnesota, but reading this book, Cast in Class in a Southern Town, which was a study of Indianola, Mississippi, and how unfair that was, and that intrigued me. I laughingly say I spent part of my junior year abroad in Mississippi. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And here I was in sociology, and I'd never been outside the Midwest except on brief vacations. I thought, how is this competent? If I'm supposed to understand the United States, I didn't think it was competent. So I spent my winter term in Mississippi, and that transformed my life in many ways. And and one of them is about the subject of race relations. And one of the things that you learn is that racism is alive and well in the northern part of the United States, whereas we'd always tried to portray it as a southern issue. Yeah, and this particularly bugs me with regard to sundown towns. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when I was working on the book. Now, the book is out, of course, and it's been out, and now we have a new edition out. But when I was working on the book full time, people would say, oh, yeah, sundown towns down in Mississippi, right? Alabama. And I'd say, well, no, more like Illinois or Pennsylvania. Uh, And they'd say, really? Since I lived in Mississippi for several years, I tried to find every single sundown town I could in Mississippi. I found five, two of which were sundown only for about 20 years. That compares to 506 in Illinois. So it's a northern phenomenon. And indeed, I actually have a case I report in the book, Sundown Towns, of a white family from Alabama, a rich white family, that moves to a small town in Indiana, maybe in 1910 or 1920, I don't know. And then they have to send a maid back home to Alabama lest she be killed because it's a sundown town. And they're astounded and upset. You people don't even know how to run race relations. Who's supposed to be the maid? Who's going to do the dirty work? And they have a point. So this is a mostly northern phenomenon, and it's national. And yet every time it's in a Hollywood movie, that movie is set in Mississippi or Georgia. You know, there are movies that are all about sundown towns, like the movie Hoosiers or the movie Gross Point Blank, a movie I don't recommend on any ground. (laughs) (laughs) Gross Point, there's five of them. They were all sundown towns until just 10, 15 years ago, just outside Detroit. Hoosiers is how one sundown town high school beat another sundown town high school playing in a third sundown town. And Hollywood dealt with that by sticking a few black folks in the crowd scenes and in the band. They couldn't handle it. And everybody laughed in Indiana who saw it because they knew that even when Hollywood was filming the movie, decades after it was supposed to have occurred, the town was still at Jasper, Indiana is where I'm talking about. It was still a sundown town as they were filming. And folks, we're hearing from James W. Lowen. Jim grew up in Illinois, sociologist and historian and a writer and a teacher for more than 20 years at the University of Vermont. He's emeritus now, and that's our good fortune because that means he gets to speak to us a little bit. (laughs) But I would say, Jim, that my experience also, it verifies this. Number one, you know, I lived for two years in West Africa. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. and Which country? Togo was my land. And I've traveled in other places. And over the last 10 years, I've been also to Rwanda and the Congo and Kenya again and so on. So I've spent a lot of time as the white person amongst black people. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same negative experience as it is to be the only black person in a sundown town, right? (laughs) That's for sure. There are lots and lots of white folks who are nice to black folks. And in fact, what happens these days sometimes when the first black family moves into a sundown town, 
the next door neighbors bring them over chocolate chip cookies, you know, and they have a good experience. You never know until you try. And I have a three-step program that I propose every sundown town in America, including recovered sundown towns, or I should say recovering sundown towns, should take. And those three steps are, first of all, admit it. We did this. It's hard as heck to get some of these towns to even do that, even though you maybe proved it with really good oral history or even written history or whatever. Number two, we did this and it was wrong and we're sorry. In other words, apologize. And number three, and we don't do it anymore. And you need to be taking steps for number three, like we now have a racial ombudsperson or we are hiring black teachers and black cops and and we're helping them find housing in the city. Now, if you've taken those three steps, you're not a sundown town anymore. And I have the directory of sundown towns on my website. It's totally incomplete because it's only the ones that I know about. But if you're on there, I'll get you off there. or I'll leave you on with a statement of what you've done to have that put into the past. And there are some towns that have done it. As a matter of fact, La Crosse, Wisconsin, basically took these three steps a couple of years ago out in public and uh, had some very interesting uh, assemblies and a statement down at the city hall that every resident was invited to sign. Once you do those things, then you're going to be more welcoming. That is the 2% thug minority that every town has, whether it's a sundown town or not. These are disaffected young men of any race, but in a sundown town, they're all white, of course, who are maybe 15 to 30 years old, and they'll be the ones that beat up on a kid at school or throw a lock through the picture window or whatever when a black family moves to town. But once you've done this, they don't think that they've got the imprimatur of the town behind them anymore they're more likely to go do something else, you know, with their bad vibrations. So I think it's important to, and the police certainly are no longer going to feel that they have the right to do what we call DWB policing. That's, of course, driving while black policing. And so these second generation sundown town problems disappear once people have taken the three steps. You know, my personal experience with this includes after I'm back from the Peace Corps, I'm in Wisconsin. I was teaching at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in physics. And, you know, I had large classes, sometimes the intro physics classes. At one time, I had a student come to me figuring that I had targeted him because he was black. And he was from somewhere like Alabama and was living in Milwaukee. He told me racism was much worse in his experience in Milwaukee than it was down in Alabama. And down in Alabama, people would still call you the N-word or or whatever, but they treated you better than people did who were pretending to be nice up in Milwaukee. Well, I, I think that's not limited just to him. In fact, there's a famous author. He was from South Africa, came to the United States, and his book is something like the term from South Africa, the N-word type term, Kaffir boy. That's what it was, I believe. But anyway, it was a success story, basically. And then he wrote a sequel, which was about living in New York City, including in Queens, and then in North Carolina. And he finds it much easier to rent an apartment in North Carolina than in New York, and so on. And, of course, Milwaukee is infamous. Milwaukee and Detroit usually tie for which is the most segregated and, in some ways, racist city in America. Some southern towns have really gotten beyond really bad race relations. Some have not. Well, folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. We're speaking with James W. Lowen. His website, sundown.tugaloo.edu. You don't know how to spell that? Search for James W. Lowen or follow the link from nordenspiritradio.org. We've got all of the links to our guests from the past 13 years on nordenspiritradio.org. We've got a place where you post comments. There's a donate button. It's full-time work, only supported by your money, not by government and not by corporations. So please help us reach out to all of the stations 
stations across the United States by providing this program. But those stations are invaluable. And I hope that you'll chime in on this too, Jim. The community radio stations, they can follow their own lead. They don't even have to toe the line that public radio stations have to do. And public radio is great, in my opinion, but there's still limits that are holding them back from expressing full truths. Have you run into that at all, Jim? Well, I don't know. I think somehow I fly under the radar, and that's good in a way. That is to say, I don't come across as extreme, and I don't think I am extreme. I mean, I am extremely against sundown towns, and I'm extremely in favor of truth in history. And I think that we've been lied to. I mean, lies my teacher told me, obviously, is somewhat uh, against the K-12 education that we get in U.S. history. Well, let's put it this way. Nobody on the left thinks I'm a leftist. Some people on the right do think I'm a leftist, I'll admit that, but I don't think I am. And so I don't actually have that problem. I know what you mean. We could throw the word Pacifica into this conversation because the mm-hmm. Pacifica radio stations are considered somewhat more daring, let's say, than the national public radio stations are. But I haven't had any problem. I enjoy community radio stations and NPR stations, Pacifica. And for that matter, you know, there's some interesting talk shows on commercial radio. Obviously, I don't mean the right-wing talk shows that if they ever had somebody like me on, they would just harass me and harangue me. So anyway, my point being, though, is your message getting out there and is it actually changing things? Because when you wrote Lies My Teacher Told Me, you're really advocating for our educational system to teach history better, particularly K through 12. Absolutely. Teach it entirely differently for that matter. Yes, I think it's beginning to make a difference. Now, I did not expect when I first wrote Lies My Teacher Told Me, I did not expect it to change the textbook industry. For one reason, my book had kind of a predecessor, a book called America Revised that had come out 15 years earlier. It didn't make at all the same critique that I made, but it kind of poked fun at textbooks for their form more than for their content. But it was a good book, and it was actually serialized in the New Yorker. And at that time, all of the major textbook publishers were located in New York, so I knew that they were aware of this critique. And then I come along 15 years later, and I find that they're still doing the same things that she, this author, critiqued them for, Francis Fitzgerald. So I didn't think I'd make much of a difference to the publishers, and I haven't. But I have made a difference to the teachers. Both Lies My Teacher Told Me and also a book I wrote for teachers called Teaching What Really Happened. These two books are big in ed schools. So if people are learning how to teach U.S. history, they usually get assigned one or both of my books. And hopefully it then makes a difference. And I think it makes a difference because I speak to groups, for example, the National Council for the Social Studies and state and regional groups that are, you know, state councils for the social studies. And they love me. They always fill my rooms to overflowing and applaud and buy my books and read them. And obviously it makes a difference to their teaching. At the same time, growing up in the Midwest, I sometimes hold up my book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, and say, well, I could have subtitled this. Revenge against Coach DeMolin, because he was my <laughs> history teacher. And he's still the history teacher for a lot of people in the Midwest and in the South, and especially in Texas. That is, the coach. There aren't enough PE classes to go around, you know. And so you've you got about five football coaches these days. You've got the football coach and the assistant, and you've got the JV coach, and you've got the freshman coach. Then you've got the basketball coaches and maybe the track coach. And I'm not talking about people who are history teachers first, and then they volunteer to coach soccer. I'm talking about people who are coaches first, but they have to teach something. Well, they're not going to teach English. The students will all come out illiterate, so they'll never be assigned English. 
then they couldn't even conceive of teaching math, so they get assigned something that doesn't matter. That's the thinking. That's American history. And uh, that demoralizes all the real teachers of American history. Plus, it puts all these coaches in the classroom who don't care about American history and who just stay ahead of their kids in the book. We were never even sure if Coach DeMolin was ahead of us. I'm afraid you're probably overgeneralizing about that group, and there's probably some Oh, yeah, people. I have, absolutely. And I <laughs> really to, steaming. I, preface, I, I think I'm in the conversation, though, that's saying my books, two of them, have made a difference to most teachers, and I think a lot of teachers are now doing a really good job teaching American history. There are still some school districts, and this is a Wisconsin story that I tell when I'm on the radio everywhere. Two or three years ago, Superior, Wisconsin, way up in the northwest corner, along with Duluth, Minnesota, right across the line from it, engaged me to do a big teaching workshop for them, and I did. And then I met at lunch a teacher who had come from the next district over, and he was there on his own, and furthermore, he said that if his district found out that he was there listening to me, he'd be in trouble. They wanted a history teacher who just taught the textbook, period. So here we have two adjoining districts in Wisconsin, one of which wants you to come to my workshop, and the other one of which wants you not to. One of the things that you said when I interviewed you five years ago was that our history books should be thinner and that we've got this online internet resources about all these things. I was wondering if there's an index for measuring if history books are actually accurate or complete or tilted. Is there that kind of rating anywhere? The only rating is mine. Well, that's authoritative. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I don't try to rate. Well, for instance, the current edition of Lives My Teacher Told Me is based on my reading of six more American history textbooks after the first edition, so it's 18 in all. But I don't try to rate them from first to 18th. I'm attacking the genre. I think we should not have 1,152-page history textbooks, which is what they average now. That might have been sensible. In 1965, we were trying to teach history in a little town out on the South Dakota prairie, and there ain't nothing in town. There's no library, and there's no collection, so that's the only resource you have is the textbook. But now, no matter how small the town, the school is hooked up to the Internet. And on the web, there's just hundreds of thousands of good sources for learning about history, from photographs at the Library of Congress to websites put up by people that know what they're talking about, about the Civil War and whatever you're talking about. So I think we need 300-page paperbacks to just kind of hold the course together. We don't need any of these big textbooks. It's interesting that the history profession doesn't even rate college history textbooks, although they did briefly, and they certainly don't rate high school-level textbooks, which I think is terrible, because if they did, then that would give practicing teachers some idea of what to teach against and what to watch out for and which books to adopt and which books not to adopt. But they consider these not scholarship, and they don't want anything to do with them. I am wondering, though, if there is any drift, positively or negatively, in terms of the textbooks that we're getting. And part of this I'm attributing, you know, you mentioned Texas as the biggest statewide adopter, that they drive the selection for a lot of the big publishers, what they include, what they don't include. And as more states have become Republican-dominated, and I'm afraid I'm making the assumption that that means that they're going to have a tilt that's not going to be willing to criticize the U.S. as well, Well, I think that's true. But on the other hand, Texas, when it was Democratic-dominated, did that too. 
Sure. I actually had a run-in with the Mississippi textbook adoption process, and that was when it was democratic. I was the spearhead of a group that wrote a uh, new history of Mississippi, and the state of Mississippi refused to adopt it. And we sued them, and we won a path-breaking victory called Lowen et al. versus Turnipseed et al. against the state textbook board, because Mississippi adopts statewide just like Texas does. And, of course, those Democrats, they were Dixiecrat Democrats, most of them, most of them have since then become Republicans. But still, this is bipartisan. An example I give is my candidate for the second worst president in the history of the world, which is Franklin W. Pierce, uh, the president just before Buchanan and therefore just before the Civil War. He did a whole bunch of things that helped cause what we call bleeding Kansas or bloody Kansas. He was totally pro-slavery, even though he was from New Hampshire. He's so bad that he's the only president in the history of the country who won election and then wanted to be renominated, and his party wouldn't. Uh, and in fact, he was so disliked <laughs> in New Hampshire that when he went back to New Hampshire after his term of office, nobody even met his train. <laughs> but now he's the only president New Hampshire ever had, after all. And in, I think, 1952, he got a college name for him, Franklin W. Pierce College in New Hampshire. He has a state historical marker right outside the state capitol that says a bunch of BS about him without revealing that he was disliked by all or without revealing anything he ever did. So does any textbook say any of the things I just said about Franklin W. Pierce, any of those negative things? No, they don't, because they don't want to lose sales in New Hampshire. And part of my question in talking about that was, is this just normal everywhere in the world? I actually think we're worse, and here's why. First of all, certainly we're worse than South Africa, because I read a really good book about this issue of history textbooks written in South Africa for South Africans. And it was written shortly after the one-man-one-vote revolution, if you will. And it was written by four female teachers. I think they were all K-12 teachers. And I think most of them were white, maybe all of them. And they kind of listed six myths that they had been teaching in the apartheid era. And I'm reading these myths, and these are kind of myths appropriate to South Africa. And I'm thinking, yeah, we teach about four of those ourselves, you know. Uh, and then they said, now, if these are no longer appropriate. I would argue they had never been appropriate, but never mind. What should we teach now? And so that's what the whole book wrestles with then. It was called A New History for a New South Africa. And I have no doubt that it's been implemented, at least in some places. And then Russia did a very interesting thing, or it was actually the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, you remember Gorbachev and his sure. whole campaign? He called it Glasnost, which we translated as openness. And Russia has exams in every subject in late May. And at one point, the folks running the history exam, including the college professors, said, now look, how can we have this exam? We've been teaching a bunch of nationalist BS. This isn't worth testing. And they canceled the exam and, and went back to the drawing boards and produced better textbooks. So I'm saying if Russia can do it, why can't we? Sure. And I was thinking about Germany, too. Germany faces its past pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? And so I was wondering if you read a textbook in, say, 1889, maybe it would have been facing our racism, the slavery issue directly. But as you go into the nadir, that maybe those things got scrubbed out. Yeah. I, well, I have seen that happening to some extent. As I say, I haven't really focused in the 1880s like you now make me wish I had. <laughs> but it's very interesting what we know and then what we develop amnesia about. One of the things I suggest teachers do, as opposed to just teaching the textbook, is to get one of these textbooks. Well, let's put it this way. I stole this idea from a teacher here in Washington, D.C., actually. She goes to used bookstores 
and buys old textbooks. They're 50 cents. Nobody wants them. A lot of bookstores won't even handle them. So it doesn't cost her a lot of money out of her teacher's pay. And she has a whole bunch of them, maybe 30, that are in a rectangular laundry basket that she puts in the corner of her room. And some of them are like the same textbook they're using now, but the 1958 edition. Some of them are completely different. And then she says, when they come to a given subject, she, uh, interestingly, she does this on Herbert Hoover for one. She says, okay, go get a book. And the students all go off and they get you know, whatever book they want. And they learn the 30 different things that we're saying about Herbert Hoover. And each of them is just stated as a monotone. This is fact. <laughs> but they're different to some extent from each other. And you realize that your job cannot be to learn the textbook. That would make no sense at all because the textbooks vary. They don't vary enough, just for the record, but they do vary. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely take a critical eye. I mean, I think actually it's an honest eye, but people experience it as being critical when you point out that sundown t- and racism still exists all over the place. We're not post-racist society or anything like that. But I was trying to imagine you with the microphone in your face as Andrew Cuomo was just, uh, I don't know what it was, a few weeks ago. He got in trouble because he said, we never were great. Make America great again. Maybe we never were great. I mean, that's a, a, a blurb that was excerpted from what he said. Couldn't you say that same thing? We never were great. I wouldn't say that same thing. It depends on about what. Exactly. I mean, we've never been spotless and perfect, that's for sure. And we've also never been terrible and the worst country on the earth, that's for sure. Now, if we get into something, I mean, you know, I actually think that some of the race relations things that were going on in the 1870s were great. They were terrific. And it's too bad that they got cut short. For that matter, I think the Obama election was great and had a lot of potential. And only some of it got realized, and some of it has been kind of backlashed. So I think we've got work to do. And I hope that every citizen listening straps on for himself or herself something to do, maybe even as a result of this conversation we're having. Let me make one suggestion. If you've never read Lies My Teacher Told Me, I'm actually going to suggest you buy it. I I usually try not to commercialize my own book, but go buy the new edition and read it. But keep it nice. Don't mark it up. And then if you think it's got some merit, then give it to your kid's history teacher. Or if you don't have any kids, go take it to the nearest high school and give it to a history teacher that you find there. And slap them upside to the head of it with it and say, you know, please read this. You'll find this is helpful. And that way, my book gets more than one reader. And that way, history gets taught better and better in high school. You know, I try and be knowledgeable about history. For Spirit in Action over the past years, I've not only included James W. Lowen amongst my guests, I've had Eric Foner as a guest, uh, Chris Tomlinson, who's a journalist who is from Texas. His family actually had a history with racism and slavery and so on. Catherine Gerbner I just had recently, and she covered an area called Christian Slavery is what her book's called. It just come out. Yeah, you'll probably like it. I should probably send you a copy. Okay. <laughs> and she's covering the period from the 1600s into the 1700s in Barbados and so on and all the attitudes and how it was rationalized. I think it is so very important to understand the dynamics that allow us and support us in being 
bigoted, racist, discriminatory. There's pluses and minuses to being able to discriminate between two things, right? Tell that this thing is different than that thing. And then when you apply it with prejudice, how it becomes so deadly. But religion is sometimes a tool in there. And I know at least five years ago, you identified as UU, Unitarian Universalist, and I'm Quaker. Yeah, I am. And one of the things that I found surprising in your book is there's relatively little mention of religion as either a mode of enforcement or a motivator for the various perspectives in sundown towns. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Quakers at one point here and there, and I mean, there's a little bit of mention of that. But overall, when you discuss the reasons for and against the mechanisms, you very seldom talk about religion. Was that because it's really not a significant influence on the nadir and coming out of the nadir? Well, I think that during the nadir, unfortunately, even religions that had been pretty good on race relations often went bad. For example, Quaker communities across the Midwest had generally allowed black folks to move in. But then after 1890, the anti-racism in the Quaker church, I think, often kind of vanished or anyway uh, lessened. And we see, for example, that Edina, Minnesota, which is the richest and most prestigious suburb of Minneapolis, though it was founded with both Quakers and African Americans, uh, including as members of the original school board and stuff like that, it went racist in about 1920 and uh, became a sundown town. And nobody really did anything about that. Similarly, we see that German socialists who were kind of, um, you know, socialism sometimes can be good on race. It doesn't have to be. It should be, if you would think about it, because it's a uh, saying that the, the oppressed people don't have equal opportunity, but sometimes they only do that with regard to social class and not with regard to race. And so Herman, Missouri, for instance, which is right in the center of Missouri, was a pretty much a town of German socialists. And it had, and they had admitted African Americans. And then at a certain point, the black folks asked if their kids could go to the school. The school was in German, but they were willing to learn German. And by a very narrow vote, they voted no, they couldn't. And then they kind of took it to its logical extreme and threw them all out of the town and became a sundown town. So I think during this nadir of race relations, all kinds of, of bad things happened to idealisms of all kinds. Part of my question was, morality theoretically is bound up with religion. And yet, I'm not sure it has played out really successfully. I think of the civil rights movement as having a strong religious component. There's a lot of people coming together, you know, we shall overcome and all of these things. Of course. But in the Nader period, did not religion act as either a break or a counterforce or maybe impetus for, I don't know. It did. I mean, I can actually tell you a couple of towns, for instance, where the Quaker influence prevented the town from going sundown or was part of the reason that it never went sundown. But then, you know, I'm genetically Mennonite, I claim. My father stopped being a Mennonite in about 1925, and I was born long after that, so I was not raised Mennonite at all. But I think every low one in the world is genetically Mennonite, and I am. So I can tell you there's all kinds of Mennonite towns. The, you know, the Mennonites were the first people to be against slavery and the first people to be against war in, in Western Europe and in the United States, They, along with the Quakers. Well, Goshen, Indiana, with Goshen College and, and has another Mennonite college there as well. It was a sundown town. The Mennonites didn't do anything about it. There's at least two Mennonite-dominated towns in Kansas that went sundown. 
you know, just because you were anti-racist at one point, it doesn't always stay, which is, I think, a tragedy. There's even people. Howard University is named for General O.O. Howard. He was called the conscience of the army during the Civil War because he tried to keep the racist generals, some of them, in Sherman's army from doing terrible things to the black hangers-on that did the laundry for the troops, that dug the fortifications, that did anything they could so that they could hang on to the army and, and be free and be in the neighborhood rather than be left behind when the army left and re-enslaved. Well, he did all kinds of good things. Then he was in charge of the Freedmen's Bureau during Reconstruction, and then he was the first president of Howard University. And then late in his life, around 1890, he relaxes, shall we say, on race and, and goes racist again. Huh. Now, not everybody did that. There are some standout people during the nadir of race relations, white people, who took very principled stands against all odds and wrecked their careers about it even. But I think it's all too easy to be expedient and um, be anti-racist while it's the thing to be, but not always. I interviewed one historian, Robin Bernstein. Her book, Racial Innocence, I think it was called, one of the things she talks about there is Uncle Tom's Cabin, which kind of comes out as an anti-racism book when it originates. It is an anti-racist book. The original book is. But that it got performed across the United States. There are these troops yes, performing during everywhere. during the major of race relations, it becomes softened so that Uncle Tom becomes, shall we say, an Uncle Tom. Uh, the original Uncle Tom, there's actually a person that's modeled after, a guy named Josiah Henson. He lived right near here at one point in uh, Bethesda. Bethesda, Maryland, and he wound up, having escaped slavery and having escaped the United States so he couldn't be recaptured, he wound up in Ontario, Canada, where he helped found a black community there. He was no Uncle Tom, and it's a beautiful example of the nadir of race relations. What happens to the story of Uncle Tom after the novel came out, and the novel is an anti-slavery novel and an anti-racist novel, too. But then in the 1890s, it becomes perverted. Right, and used through minstrel shows and other things yeah. to push the country in a horrible direction, from my point of view. That's right. Well, you've done so much writing. You've done a wealth of knowledge for the nation. And if people want to look for James W. Lowen, they're going to find more books to read than they can fit in in this lifetime. But you are also, I really have the sense that Sundown Towns, and you know, with your 2018 edition of it, I mean, it updates it for today. Is that really your seminal personal research as opposed to just gathering other people's information? Yeah, I think that has more primary research than anything else I've ever done. It totally astonished me. And so the fact that it astonished so many readers doesn't surprise me. Uh, nobody knew that there were thousands, literally thousands, of sundown towns across the north and across the west and, and the northeast and everywhere. But And parts of the south, places like Florida, the outside of Florida was settled by a bunch of northerners, and so it's full of sundown towns. Texas is full of sundown towns. It's just the traditional south that hardly has any, like Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, southeastern Arkansas, but the rest of Arkansas, the Ozarks, is full of sundown towns. Well, nobody knew all this, and at least of all me. And that's why the book took so long. I had no idea. So, yes, I'm, I'm proud of that in terms of the seminal, as you put it, uh, research that, that went into it. Unfortunately, I'm still doing it. That is, I'm still 
enmeshed in trying to get my website to cover every Sun downtown in America, which, of course, I can never do, especially since I'm already 76 years old. But I don't think I could do it even if I were 26. <laughs> <laughs> it's an immense job, and you've been doing an amazing amount of it. But it's an important job, and the reason it's an important job, and astoundingly, and maybe this is uh, where we can end, astoundingly, places like Ferguson, Missouri, were briefly sundowntowns. So I say astoundingly because Ferguson was two-thirds black by the time that the, shall we say, the Ferguson race riot occurred. But what had never changed from the sundowntown days was the feature of DWB policing. And, of course, the police department was so white that it only had one black officer per shift out of 20 people. Just ridiculous for a town that's two-thirds black. I mean, that's just a problem waiting to happen. Everybody knows that's not how you do things. So the fact that Ferguson had never come to terms with being a sundown town, that it had never taken the three-step program or any other program to say, we apologize for our former racism and we don't do that anymore and so on, and we're trying to desegregate our police force and so on. They had never done any of those things. And they still had a police force that was threatening its black population and, and pulling them over incredibly disproportionately and doing bad things to them. Well, that's an example, then, of why it's still important to get every sundown town out in the open so that its residents can deal with the, their own past and transcend the white supremacy that they had previously manifested. You're going out and speaking in a number of different places. I noticed on your schedule that uh, mid-September you're going to be in Polson, Montana, speaking yep. with Education Conference, Salish and Kootenay Tribes. Uh, I was more excited about on October 5th you're going over to speak at KFCF Annual Banquet. I noticed it was at the Holy Trinity Armenian Church in Fresno, California, and you're doing this. Is this some kind of a benefit, I think, for the foundation, the Fresno Free College? Foundation. How much traveling do you do? Do you try and do two or three, and then in the times in between, you write your book? That's exactly right. Yeah. Last things. I'd like some comments from you, Jim, about the direction of our country. Certainly, for the past two years, you know, you mentioned the possibility that a number of Obama's efforts were being either slowed, reversed, or somehow undercut. How do you think that the measure of racism, sundown towns, the honesty that with confronting our past, how do you think that's drifted in the last two years? I think that we have no alternative but to keep on keeping on. That is, I think the fact, for example, that our textbooks don't teach us how to think causally, uh, that they're just having us learn, I put learn in quotation marks, learn one darn twig after another instead of teaching us any forests or any trees. I think this is helping us not be very bright when we are assessing current events, when we are thinking about the present. So I do think that it's all of a piece that we need to work on race relations. We need to work on teaching more accurate and more interesting history in K-12. And I think when we do those two things, I think we will have a, a better populace that will make better decisions for the United States going forward. Well, and you're certainly pushing in that direction. Folks, we've been speaking with James W. Lowen. His website is sundown.tugaloo.edu. Maybe that's hard to spell, Tugaloo, or James W. Lowen. Lowen is L-O-E-W-E-N. All of those things are maybe more complicated than spelling out northernspiritradio.org, and I've got a link directly to him. He speaks around... I. 
urge you to have time listening to him buy any of his books and there's a wealth of them he's a sociologist historian writer and teacher he's taught for more than 20 years at university of vermont adjunct professor at university of illinois urbana-champaign and at catholic university of america in washington dc all of his stuff is gold as far as I'm concerned, and I can't wait for you to get to know more of his ideas and grow from them. He's pushing the world in a good direction, and I'm so thankful you are doing that, Jim, and I'm so thankful you took this extra long period speaking with me today for Spirit in Action. It was extra long, but thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks so much, Jim. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 